So as we um, end this book of Nehemiah today, it's important to note that when we as lead pastors or lead team, which are all the lead pastors through redemption, we're talking through teaching this book and teaching a series. We were really looking at um, a, a pretty fractured world at the time. This was kind of like towards the end of 2020 when we made the decision to, to teach this book. And we were looking at kind of a, uh, just a fractured people, a fractured church, a big C fractured church. Um, and, and we were praying for and asking God for uh, restoration and for rebuilding and for revival in a lot of ways, knowing that that would only come through our own repentance and our own prayers for renewal and restoration, not just uh, as a church, not just as a nation, not just as a people, but even personally. And, and really kind of leaning into and asking God, not just for a rebuilding of once what was, uh, but also looking forward to what will be under the mercy and the grace of God, just like we've seen in the book of Nehemiah. In the story of Nehemiah, if you haven't been tracking with us, and I would encourage you to, to get our app because all of our sermons are there on the app. You can access them there and, and really kind of track where, we're, where we've been through this book because I think it's just been so good for us, not as a church, but even individually. I was uh, talking to a friend this week and he said, you know, 2020 was just so difficult uh, um, professionally and personally and even spiritually. Like it's amazing how God's used this series even in an own kind of personal rebuilding of sorts. And, and if you've missed Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah is, that, is another reminder that God is not just the God of a second chance, but he's the God of another chance and another chance. And he's the God of another opportunity, a reminder that the Lord who loves to restore his people is our ultimate refuge. And it applies to a nation and Israel, it applies to you, it applies to me. And the message is that you are not too far for God to redeem and rebuild and restore and revive. The prophet Isaiah, when he was watching the people of God be led into captivity, he prophesied a day when God would let them return. And in Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet says, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. And Nehemiah is a fulfillment of that. In fact, the name Nehemiah means the comfort of Yahweh. Yahweh is the one true God. Comfort has arrived in Nehemiah to do what God said he would do, to rebuild the wall and the temple and to restore a people, despite their continued downward spiral of rebellion against God's way of living. And if you were with us uh, last week, you saw when the people do finish the wall, when they do rebuild the wall, they throw a huge party. And they read that their God is gracious and kind that gives them a hunger for God's word. And they have like this, kind of like this seven-day family reunion barbecue party uh, called the Feast of Booths. It was a, re a remembrance of what God had done when the people of God journeyed through the wilderness and they lived in these like tents or these booths. It was a celebration of the goodness of God towards his wayward people. And so they throw down for like seven days in Jerusalem. And the scripture says the celebration is heard from far away. And they read the book of the law. They celebrate God, how he restored his people. In chapter 9... Corey took us through this, but it, it, the, the, the Levites, uh, who are the priests, they begin to pray. And in, in chapter 9, they hit this moment of confession, and they all cry out for the mercy of God. It's a, it's a moment where they're kind of recapping the faithfulness of God to his people. 
In chapter 9, it says that they confess their sins and the sins of their fathers. And as they pray, they, they, they start at the beginning. I mean, they take this serious. They start at creation. They start in Genesis. They say, God, you're the creator. And then they move on to God, the covenant maker. And then they, they talk about the exodus and all of that. They're recounting the faithfulness of God, that, God, you're a compassionate God. When we were slaves in Egypt, you rescued us. You led us. You protected us. And they celebrate God. God for who he is and what he has done. And then in that moment of prayer, that moment of confession, it takes a, it takes a, a turn. And, and, they, and they, they, they start to talk about their fathers. And in chapter 9, verse 26, they, they talk about their fathers who were disobedient, who had rebelled against God, who turned their back against God, who had committed these terrible blasphemies. And then, and then they see what, what, what God did. They, 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 they said, we were disobedient. We rebelled against you. They turned their backs on you. They killed your prophets. They, you had, you warned them, they warned them in order to turn back to you, and they committed these blasphemies. So you delivered them, verse 27, into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you from heaven. You heard them, and in great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But then as soon as they got comfortable again, they turned back again to this rebellion. So, so the people, as they're praying and as they're recounting and as they're confessing, they're talking about the, the sins of their fathers who were in this pattern of rebellion, and then they would fall into the hands of their oppressors. God would rescue. They would get comfortable, and they would be, again, kind of wise in their own eyes and do their thing, and they would fall into this pattern. They'd fall into this cycle that God would be faithful. The people would be unfaithful. The people would cry out, and God would show mercy and rescue. And what they're saying is, we, they're owning it, we did everything wrong, but you continue to be gracious, and even when we are wrong, you do right to us. And then, then they, they, make it, they make it personal in there, and they, and they say, you know, what we are getting, we deserve. We were slaves in the very land that you get us. And it's important for us because when you look at corporate sin of a people, it helps you to contextualize your own. And as you look at the history of humanity, you see we have always been broken. And it doesn't excuse what we've done, but it tethers us into the great story of human sin, but the even better and bigger story of God's faithfulness. And so here the people say, my ancestors have sinned, and God, you were faithful to them, and we have sinned. God, will you be faithful to us? And then at the end of chapter 9, verse 38, they make a promise. In chapter 10, they say, we're, we're going we're gonna to sign it. So they solemnly promise to obey God. They sign this covenant. They swear all these things that they're going to start doing. It's this huge kind of rallying cry. It's this big crescendo moment. They're like, we will do this, God. We will not continue the pattern of sin. We will not continue this pattern of faithfulness. We are going to do it. And they, and they get really kind of specific about what they're going to start doing. They say, we, we swear we won't marry our sons and daughters off to, to foreign men and women who will lead them astray from a holy God. We swear that we are going to bring all the tithes and all the offerings into the temple so that the, the Levites, the, the group of people who, who minister to us, won't have to tend in the fields. They can work full time in the temple, ministering to us and keeping up the temple. We swear that we are going to bring the wood for the fires and we're going to keep the altar fires going. We, we, we swear how we are going to obey the Torah, the very words of God. 
We're, we swear, we promise that we are going to live in this rhythm of, of, of Sabbath, this rest that you've commanded us to live in, to reflect on who you are and the work that you are doing. We're going to live in this, in this rhythm of Sabbath and worship, and we're going to honor the temple of God. And they swear it. We swear. And they throw a huge, huge party. And if you remember, Aaron was, was teaching last week. They, they, it's a pretty amazing scene. They, chapter 12, and Nehemiah has these two choirs, these two worship bands uh, on the wall. Uh, and it's kind of a big, like, hey, you said that a fox would break this wall. Well, look what I got. I got, like, huge, like, bands, worship bands, choirs going. And they, and they, and they go in opposite directions, walking along the wall. And they encircle, they surround Jerusalem. And they end up at the temple together, making a huge noise, worshiping God, huge party. We resolve to obey God. We can do it. We are never going to mess up again. Let's go. And if the book of Nehemiah was like an 80s movie, chapter 12 would be like the end scene. This big musical montage. We built this city. And they'd be like high-fiving each other, jumping up in the air. We did it. And then it would freeze, and the credits would start to roll. And there'd be this voiceover that was like, you know what, kids? That's a good lesson for us to learn there. Sure, we all make mistakes. But if you just believe in yourself and rally your friends and work real hard, you can accomplish your dreams. You can start that business. You can lose that weight. You can stay in shape. You can have a good family. You can be successful. You just have to believe and work real hard. You can do it. Nehemiah. (laughs) But that's not where the book ends. So I have this big moment of celebration, and that's where we get to chapter 13. And you, you should already be there in Nehemiah chapter 13. It says this. Verse 1, on that day the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. So kind of a weird way for the chapter to open, but let me explain why it says that when the people of God were being led away into exile, it was horrible. They would slaughter children in front of them. They would put rings in the noses of kings and put a hook in there and drag them around and lead them across the wilderness. And the Moabites and the Ammonites were these neighboring tribes that had kind of a common lineage uh, with the people of Israel. And so the people of Israel asked the 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 Moabites and Ammonites, can you bring us food? Can you bring us water um, as they enslave us and as they carry us away? And they wouldn't. In fact, they just laughed at them. And so God tells them, listen, the Moabites and the Ammonites are not safe people for you to be in relationship with. So as you're reconstituting your nation, as you're rebuilding, they should not be in your inner circle. Look at verse 3. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. 
And now it's a really strange application of the law because that's not really what God was talking about. He's talking about two specific groups for a specific reason, not all foreigners. In fact, when God set his people up, he said, I'm setting you apart so that you'll be a blessing to the nations. That was a big part of why God had set this particular group apart. But now they just kind of kick everybody out. So not really what the application of that law was intended. Look at verse 4. Before this, Eliashid, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God, he was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain and new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests." So it's kind of interesting here as well because they swore that they were going to bring the offerings back into the storehouses of the temple. That was one of the things we swear we're going to do. But now we find out that the high priest had cleared out one of the storerooms, broomed in furniture, and, and made it into an apartment for his relative Tobiah. Tobiah the Ammonite. And if you're like, man, that name kind of sounds familiar, well, that's because it is. He's the guy who was making fun of them when they were rebuilding the wall. So here you have this guy who's opposed to the people of God and opposed to what the people of God were doing. And now the high priest has given this guy a place to live, sets him up in a condo in the city, in the temple, in the storeroom where the offerings are supposed to be held. Gets worse. Look at verse 6. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. Nehemiah wants to make it very clear, y'all. He says, look, uh, I was not there when that happened. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission, came back to Jerusalem, and here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. And I was greatly displeased, and I threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Bible's awesome. Because <laughs> Nehemiah is... Chapter 13, Nehemiah gets a little bit different than what you've seen him. He shows up, he says, uh uh-uh, this is not how this works. Throws all the stuff out. Look at verse 9. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. Nehemiah shows up, he says, no. Throws Tobiah out. He says, you guys are defiling the temple that you swore you would take care of. Look at verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own field. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And then I called them together and stationed there at their post. See, the nation had decided we're going to give a portion of our income, a portion of our resources. We're going to put them together and we're going to give them to the Levites. We're going to give them to the temple so that they can spend their time caring for the temple and so that they can spend their time ministering to us. But the people stopped doing that. And so the Levites are like, well, we have to go to work. We got to eat. So we have to go back to farm, which meant they had to abandon the temple. So now the temple doesn't have the people in the places it's supposed to have because the people stopped doing what they swore they were going to do. And so Nehemiah now has to reestablish the priesthood. Go down to verse 15. And in those days, I saw people in Judah treading winepress on the Sabbath. 
and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine and grapes and figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. So I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing that you are doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on the city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. And when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gate so no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. What Nehemiah is saying is like, look, our forefathers did the same thing. They disobeyed, which is what got us in this mess in the first place. And you, and you guys said, we will honor the Sabbath. But here you are working on the Sabbath. And you're desecrating the temple and you're disobeying the law. You said that you would promote intimacy with God to be near his word and obey it. And you're not doing any of those things. Look at verse 20. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem, but I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the set, which is amazing. Humans have been the same ever since there have been humans. Like, you tell me I can't do a thing, I will find a way to do that thing. I will try to find a loophole and a way to do that thing. And so Nehemiah is so frustrated, he's got to go out there again. He's like, why are you out here? I just told everybody, don't come out here. Get away from my wall. Stop trying to sell stuff around my wall. Leave. They got to do it again. So he drives them all away. Look at verse 23. Moreover, in those, I thought there'd be like some parents that would just rise up in that moment because we're very close to the heart of Nehemiah right now. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Nehemiah is turned up a little bit. I don't know if that's the way right to use that term, but. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joedah, son of Elisha, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Nehemiah says, you're not teaching your children the word of God. You're allowing them to be taught by culture and not by the word of God. You wept over this before. You wept over this before, and now you're raising your children, and you're not raising them the word of God. You're allowing the culture around them to shape and to form them. Before, when we read the word, and they didn't know it in, 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 in its original language, when they hadn't heard it before, and they couldn't understand it because they didn't speak, you wept over that. And now you're in that same thing. You're allowing that to happen again. And then in verse 25, like Nehemiah just snaps. He's like smacking people, pulling beard hair out. I mean, he's just like going. Nehemiah, the guy who used to be like, let's pray. 
and we'll make a plan, and then we'll work that plan out. And he's like, nah, I'm done. I'm done with all these fools. And the book ends in verse 31, says this. I also made provisions for the contributions of wood, meaning they're clearly not bringing the things that they're supposed to be bringing at designated times and for the first fruits. And then he just says this. He says, remember me with favor, my God. In essence, he's saying, God, I, I tried. And that's the end of the book, which is a super bummer ending. <laughs> and honestly, it's a really weird message for the last of a series. I mean, the last message in the series is supposed to be the big kind of crescendo moment. It's the big emotional push from the pulpit to the people to, hey, let's get our lives right with God. So recommit your life, pray a prayer, walk the aisle, let's do the deal. Like we're going to promise to never sin again. It's supposed to be the moment that creates momentum in your spiritual moment, in your spiritual life. This is not a very happy way to go out. It's not a great way for the story to end. But one of the reasons that I really like Nehemiah is because it also feels a lot like life, doesn't it? I mean, if you want to hear a story of working hard and overcoming like adversity, I don't, I'm, I'm all in on the Olympics right now because I love those kind of stories that, you know, where they just kind of come from nothing and build and work hard you know, and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. There's a lot of books out there on that. There's a lot of stories out that you can do it. Just believe in yourself. And some of us, we've kind of had those kind of Christian experiences. I mean, Nehemiah chapter 12 is like the last day of summer camp, which is amazing. I mean, that's where everybody just rallies together. It's like, God, I am going to keep every promise I made to you. I'll never sin again. I am breaking up with him as soon as I get home. <laughs> but what happens? We break our promises, we break our vows. It's the weight of humanity, the weight of our own sin. It's the current of culture that pulls us around. It's our own addictions. It's our own just struggles. It's our own stuff that just pulls us down. And so what I love about the Bible is that it is not naively optimistic or disassociated from real life. The Bible is insanely relevant, intensely realistic, it sounds like real life. We all want this kind of like utopia in our life. And, and we strive for that. We work for that. We kind of do all kinds of things that we can kind of bring about what we think our own version of utopia for us is going to be. And we've all realized, I just can't make it happen on my own. There's something missing. There's something wrong with us. And we just think like, well, if I could just tweak one thing, if I could just change one thing, if we could just get a new president, or if I could just get a new job, or if I could just move to a new place, or if I could just get new friends, or if I could just get a new spouse, or if I could just, if I could just, if I could just, if it could just be the new thing, that would be the thing. And as the quote goes, if only there were some evil people out there committing evil deeds and all we had to do was just destroy them. But the line that separates good and evil runs right through the human heart. Meaning there's something broken about all of us. The Bible speaks to that reality. 
And we, on our own, through our own effort, through our own achievement, cannot bring in the something new that we long for on our own. We can drive out oppressors only to find out that there's an oppressor in us. And you've experienced that spiritually in your own life. I will resolve to honor God. That thing that I used to do, I'll never do it again. That thing I struggled with, I'll never struggle with it again. God, I'm going to do it. This time, I'm going to do it. And then what happens? I've made those kind of promises. You've made those kind of promises. A few months later, you're right back in the same failure. You're right back looking yourself in the mirror like, how does this keep happening to me? When, when I first um, moved here, I came to work uh, with 710, our young adult and college community. And for me, like, dream job, like greatest thing that ever happened to me. I could not wait. I could not be, uh, wait to be a part of this community. And I just thought, man, I, oh, I am going to help to lead a generation for the fame of Jesus. We are going to be a counterculture force for good in the world. Let's go. I can't wait. This is going to be amazing. I mean, I was ready to just charge it. I'm like a month into it. I was like, man, these these people like party harder and like worse than like the world. They, they, they like hook up and defraud each other sexually like the world, sometimes worse. They, they gossip and devour each other and create cliques that are more segregated and more unloving than what they're experiencing on their college campuses. And, and it turns out like there is a deep brokenness in us. And I just remember, man, I was like, I thought we were going to be like out like saving college students. Like somebody better come save us because we are a real mess. And our vision for this perfect life, this kind of like utopian experience of life, it cannot be realized by our own efforts. All right, so what do we do? Do we not try? Do we just give up? Is that the message of Nehemiah? Like just give up. No. Because the Bible is not naively optimistic, but it does not give in to a despairing pessimism either. In the book Good to Great, there's an admiral who's interviewed about uh, POWs and who would survive in these prisoner camps. And they asked the admiral, and said, well, who dies first? And, the, and he replied, well, that's easy. It's the optimist. It's the person who has put their hope into something flimsy. Like, oh, tomorrow will be a better day. Tomorrow will be a better day. I know it's going to get better. The sun's going to come out tomorrow. And so Jim Collins, the author, he asked, was like, so you just become like a pessimist? He said, no. The people who survive have to have hope, but they have to pull it together with the realism that life is extremely difficult. It is a hope-filled, realistic perspective. Life is hard but God is good. And I believe that ultimate good will ultimately be done. Life is hard, but God is good. And I believe that ultimate good will ultimately be done. One of the best characters in the scripture um, 
is a man by the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, I really just encourage you to just kind of check out his story. You can start in the book of Acts. He wrote quite a few uh, letters to different churches um, in the New Testament. But Paul's an amazing character. And if you just would, would look at his life, he was a man who left a very prominent position. He had a very successful career that he was headed for. has a radical interaction with God that leads to uh, a life of being ridiculed and beaten and imprisoned. He shipwrecked. Um, at one point, he gets bit by a snake, which I always thought, like, God, that just seems like enough. I mean, like, all this other stuff, and you're like, oh, man, really? A snake? Like, come on, right? And he's got this incredible life. And if you look at his writings, it just, it wouldn't match up with someone who goes through the suffering that he's going through. You're like, what is wrong with this guy? Is he just like kind of disassociated with what's happening to him? Or is he just this kind of like pie in the sky optimist? The thing that's different about Paul is that he knew the reality of a resurrected Christ. Paul is a realist. He's not a pie-in-the-sky optimist. He's a realist. And the realest thing to him was the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is why Paul can talk the way that he does. One of my favorite bits of his writing is Romans chapter 8. And listen how Paul talks. Listen to, listen to how this guy communicates the reality of what it is to know a resurrected Jesus. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And, and you might read that and you don't know much about Paul, but Paul knew suffering. He knew real suffering. He says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Life is hard. God is good. Ultimate good is coming ultimately. And so Paul says he knows that. And so he says, so what are we going to say? What are we going to say in response to all this stuff? God's for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, meaning God gave us everything already, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things, everything you need? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Paul answers it for us. No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, the resurrection is the realest thing in the whole world, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He's speaking up for you. He's on your side. He's got your back. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For your sake we face death all the day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. Paul, listen to what Paul's saying. Listen to the reality that Paul is bringing. 
In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height or depth. And and just in case you're sitting there like, well, I could probably think of one thing. Paul says, no, nothing else in all creation. Let me just stop the argument. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Life is hard. God is good, and ultimately, ultimately good will ultimately be done. That's what you see in Nehemiah. You see, it was better for Nehemiah to do good than evil or nothing. He, he did a good thing by rebuilding the wall. In your home, in your marriage, keep doing the good thing. With your kids who are far away or her just don't get it, are far from Christ, or at least do the good thing. Do the right thing. In your vocation, in your neighborhood, wherever God has put you, continue to do the good thing. Do the right thing. Nehemiah did the right thing, and it was, it was good for him to rebuild the wall. He couldn't bring the new heart that his people needed, but for us, we do not grow weary in doing well, even though it's difficult it's true. I mean, there are some kids who are at summer camp who made promises, who've already, who've already broken those promises. And I know that because I was that kid over and over and over and over again. You just don't know. You keep doing the good thing. Why do we go to Alaska? Because it's one of the darkest places on the planet. Because teen suicide rate is off the charts, because child uh, sexual assault because is higher than any other place in the country, because uh, alcohol abuse and drug abuse run, run wild in these villages. And when these kids leave this week, which, which Mark McGee, the leader there, he said that this is the safest week of the year for some of these kids. When they go back, it's not like they're going to go back to a village that's magically changed. But God had done a good thing in them, and who knows? God might use that good thing that he did in them to do a good thing in a village. It might change a generation. So you keep doing the good thing. We work hard. We trust God. I, I had a friend this week who asked me, and we were just kind of catching up after summer, and he said, you know, given the time that you've had in, in ministry, given the time that you've had kind of in church world, being a pastor, working for a church, all that kind of stuff, And especially when you kind of like take like the past like kind of year and a half, which was tough for everybody. It was really tough just for churches in general, tough for pastors. And he asked a question. He said, uh, you know, are you jaded by the church? And and I know where he was coming from. and, and, And I think it's a fair question. I know there are a lot of people that really are, that really are jaded by the church. And he wasn't necessarily fishing for anything. He was just being a friend, trying to be concerned. And he said, are you jaded about the church? And I answered him, and I just said, you know, man, I get why you're asking that, but I want you to know something. I love Jesus, and I just can't get away from him. I love Jesus. I mean, he is so brilliant and beautiful and magnificent, and there is, it's, I'm like blown away by Jesus. I love him. And he gave his life for this. He designed it. It was his idea. He, uh, he called it <laughs> into being. He, um, he empowers it. He provides for it. He sustains it. He blesses it. 
Like it's a mess and he blesses it. He's all about his people. And if I love him, and I do, would I not also love what he loves? Is the church a mess? Yes. It's full of people, and we're all a mess. I, I'm, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be teaching uh, the passage out of John where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And they're there at the Last Supper in the upper room. And uh, there's a conversation the disciples are all having about like, well, who, which one of us do you think is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And they don't even, they're clueless. Like Jesus is about to go be crucified. And they're just like arguing about who, which one of us do you think is the greatest? And in the middle of this conversation, Jesus stands up from the table. They'd actually all be like kind of reclining, so kind of like laying on the floor. And the scripture says he takes off his robe and he picks up a towel or like an apron and a bowl of water. And he starts to go and he gets, he lays on the floor and he starts to wash gnarly feet. And he's scrubbing these feet. And as I was kind of reading that, I was like, you know who's at the table? Peter, who's like constantly running his mouth. Um, but Peter is the one where Jesus is going to say, hey, I'm about to go through something really hard. Can you, can you all just like stay up and pray for me a little bit? Peter falls asleep. And then when he does wake up, he wakes up like a complete spaz, pulls out his knife and starts like hacking away at people, like a huge embarrassment. She's like, please, man, chill out, put that away. And then ultimately, they're going to say to Peter, hey, don't you, don't you know Jesus? Three times, Peter's going to say, I, don't, I have no idea who he is. Peter's there at the table. Judas, if you don't know who Judas is, Judas literally sells out Jesus, betrays him. And Jesus is there on the floor, on the floor with a towel, washing the feet of these men. And if he can do that, I have to love his people. And, and, and listen, I, I understand that the church can wound and hurt people, and I hate that, and it's real. And it's happened to me. But you know who's been wounded and hurt even worse by the church? Jesus. And he says, those are my kids. Even more than that, he says, that's my bride. That's who I love. And someday we're going to have an amazing feast together. And he says, I cannot wait for that party. So I love Jesus and I want to live a life that looks like I love what he loves and loves how he would love. And so Nehemiah here he ends praying. He says, God, just remember me in your steadfast love. He's essentially saying, God, I did all that I could, but I, I know that is not enough. So rather than just despair and rather than just be pessimistic and critical, he looks up and he says, God, you have to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. God, we need you to bring your kingdom, to bring justice and to bring mercy and to bring compassion and to bring love and peace. And we fight for those things as his people, but they cannot be fully realized through our own efforts. But yet still, we work for them. We fight for them because we know that life is hard, but God is good. And ultimately, good will be done ultimately. Last week, I was actually here at the 930 service, and I was back in the sound booth watching worship, and the little kind of sliver of people that I was watching in this room, I saw there was a woman who was a widow who's recently lost her husband. There was another couple, a husband and wife, 
whose daughter is in an extremely precarious physical situation in the hospital. Their grandberry babies also kind of in a risky situation. And there was a man in a wheelchair uh, who's an athlete who now has a, uh, a terminal disease for which there is no cure. And we're, we're singing, and the lyrics are on the screen, and the worship is filling the room. And I'm watching this little group of people, and they're singing, You're never going to let, you're never going to let me down. And I'm watching them sing these words. And they're singing things like, All my life, you have been faithful. And they're singing things like, Your goodness is coming after me. And I remember uh, specifically, um, and I took a picture, I hope that's okay, but I was watching this man who's in the wheelchair, and the lyrics are on the screen, the worship's filling the room, and he's just like getting after it, singing these songs. And he's got a hand to heaven in the air, belting it out singing. And his other hand is wiping tears. And he's singing, and the hand is up, And I just thought, that is worship. I thought, that is a picture of the Christian life. My hand is up. I am proclaiming the faithfulness and the goodness of God. My future is uncertain. In fact, doesn't look great. But God is good. And ultimate good will ultimately be done. So in this moment, my hand is up and I'm wiping the tears, but my mouth is filled with the praise of God. And I was like, God, thank you. That is a picture of life with you. And that is who you've called us to be as a church. That's what we want to be known for. So God, let me be a hope-filled realist. Life is hard and I will struggle, but you are a God that is gracious. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so Nehemiah says, God, would you remember me? You see, Nehemiah ends where we were meant to begin. All of our hope is in God to do in us what we could never do on our own. And the story of your Bible is not the story of grand human achievement. And those stories are beautiful, yes, but they are limited. The Bible is the story of God's faithfulness in the midst of our repeated failure. And it grows us up in hope. God, we cannot make it to heaven on our own. So will you bring heaven down? And the band's going to come right now. and We're going to celebrate communion because by his grace and in just the right time, the true and perfect Nehemiah did show up. Jesus Christ, and Jesus shows up and he says, I've come to preach good news to the poor. I've come to set the oppressed free. I've come to bring the spirit of God into the temple of your heart. Jesus says, I am the one who can bring something new into your heart and life. You see, Jesus was not just a man. He was the God man. He is the God who can heal us from disease and sickness, who brings truth to our minds to cast out the demonic, to go to war against the evil in us and to bring his kingdom of love and life. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could not. And Jesus went to the cross where he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf and the punishment for our constant rebellion fell on him. 
And he took our sin and our shame on himself and he killed him and he buried it and rose victorious, conquering Satan's sin and the grave. And when he rose, he breathed on his followers and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And he brought the renovation, the soul renewal that we need from the inside out, the very beginning of what we will ultimately be. Jesus starts that and he sustains it and he keeps it going. And one day we will see heaven come down and all nations and all people and all tribes and all tongues who put their trust in him will live with him forever. The true King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And so the hope um, of this series, the hope of this time is that if you're with us, um, that you would put all of your confidence in Jesus. Life is hard, but God is so, so good. And ultimate good will ultimately be done. So we as a church, we as followers of Jesus, we walk in this hopeful humility, confessing our sins, believing that God is doing something new in us, and using us to bring something new to a dying world. And it's us saying, God, I'm yours. My life is surrendered to you and we will struggle, but not without hope. And our hope is in Jesus. And that's how we move forward. Let me pray and then we'll get into our time of communion. Father, we love you. God, thank you for your word this morning. And God, I thank you for Nehemiah. And God, we celebrate what your people did in the rebuilding and then the restoring. God, we celebrate the obedience. And God, unfortunately, we also um, identify all too well, God, with the repeated failure. And God, Nehemiah is just another reminder of how much we need you. And so I'm so thankful that you sent the true and better Nehemiah, Jesus Christ, who's the ultimate rebuilder and ultimate restorer of our lives. And God, all the other empty promises of the world that promise to do that work always fall short. God, you never do. And so we thank you for that. I thank you for your presence here with us. And I just want to encourage you if you're in the room and you've never put your trust in God, the story of the Bible is that you are beautiful and valued because you are made in the image of God, but you are broken and separated from him forever because of your sin. And that's everybody. But God, who is rich in mercy and steadfast love, sent a solution in the person of Jesus, and his joy is your refuge. You're not perfect, so don't pretend to be. Don't pretend in this moment. And when you admit that you aren't perfect, when you admit that you're far from God, that's when the grace of God floods in because he delights to rescue repentant people. And so I'm praying now that if that's you, that today might be the day that you put your trust in Jesus. Jesus, would you do that work right now? That's in your name we pray, amen.